Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The creative imagination of playwright Don Sampson is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. In May 2015, I had the good fortune of seeing a 10-minute play entitled Blind Date, written by my longtime friend Don Sampson, who lives nearby in Willits, California. For many years prior to becoming a playwright, Don Sampson researched and wrote legal briefs for criminal defense attorneys, an experience we also discuss in this program. After seeing the local production of Blind Date, I was curious about the circumstances that came to Don Sampson's mind when he created this play, so I invited him to visit the Radio Curious Studios. We met on May 22, 2015, and began our conversation with his description of those circumstances. When I write, and I write every day, and I'm writing plays now as opposed to other things, uh, I make you know dozens of false starts for a real good take, and false starts might be scraps of dialogue or situational things that I'm hunting for conflict, I'm hunting for material for a play. And uh, I've been fascinated for some time with the online dating scene as it applies to uh, today's dating, and specifically blind date. It's way before my generation. I'm 76, and um, I'm as far away from the whole thing of online dating as I am from the caveman in certain ways. I've been married for 54 years, and uh, I'm deeply fascinated with it. And so... Uh, the best I can reconstruct how the blind date went together, I put the college student, the 20-year-old college student, uh, at a table waiting for the woman he'd met online, who was a very attractive woman. He had her photo, and she was presenting herself as being 20. And she arrives, and she is a woman clearly in her mid-40s, and uh, surprises him, and he's on the defensive. And I worked out the back and forth of it while I was in the middle of it. I would take a start one way, a start another way. I was trying to figure where where this was going to go in the end. I wasn't really sure when I started, which isn't terribly unusual in how I write plays. I usually don't have a diagram of where I'm going. I usually sort of get in the middle of it and work from the center towards the ends. And uh, as I got in deeper into the transaction between the two people, I could see, I could feel the woman taking over. I didn't know where it was going to end. But once I understood through the process of immersion in the play that she was going to a triumph in the sense that she was going to pull it off. She was a 45-year-old woman who not only had kids older than the guy she was dating, she had grandkids and was very proud of them and pushed it forward to, uh, to the kid. I'm calling him a kid. He was 20 from a small town in Pemberton, uh, Pemberton Nebraska. 
And so I worked out uh, the lines of the play by just keeping going, going back to the center and uh, working out uh, in directions that looking for uh, the right ending to it. And after a few tries, I came up with what you saw to cut right to the chase uh, at the end of the story is she, in a sense, wins him over and uh, puts aside his, uh, his concerns and, in a sense, excites him a little bit because she presents not only as a 45-year-old woman who's a grandmother, but kind of kooky. And uh, while she's there on this blind date with this kid, um, I call him a kid again, you don't realize the halfway through the play that the guy at the next table is her husband watching her, which injects not only some sex, but some creepiness into it. And she doesn't hide that. She plays on it. In fact, uh, the kid says, with your kids, you have grown up kids, know you're doing this? And she said, oh yeah, once in a while they come and they watch Teddy, who's uh, my husband watching me talk to my date. And uh, he doesn't know what to think of it, although he's almost uh, spellbound by the thing. And at a critical juncture in in the play, uh, he says, you've done this before, I'm sure. And she said, yeah, several times. And you've tricked all these kids, all these people. And And she says, yeah, and here's the critical line. She says, James... I may have tricked them, but I didn't disappoint them. And uh, he, he knows and the audience knows what she's talking about, that this thing is going to a place. He doesn't know where it's going, and he sort of gets on the train, and as the play ends, and it's a 10-minute play, so you have to, you have to put a lot in, in nine and a half pages. That's what it was. In the end, and I don't know if I'm giving away too much, uh, he, she wins him over in a sense, and uh, they go off to have dinner together. And uh, I'm cutting to the chase, but that's basically how it was worked out. I didn't have a plan. I worked, I'd worked it when I was in the middle of it, which I frequently do with my stuff. I get into a state of immersion with it and try to figure it out. Don Sampson, you say that you had a feeling that the woman was taking over. Yes. Describe that feeling. In the, in the lounge, they're waiting to go into their dinner date and just work the dialogue back and forth. And I obviously felt that if she were, if she were presenting this way and was unafraid, she had to push unashamedly towards what she wanted. And I just felt that I could feel it in there. I could feel the, the sexiness and the creepiness, both of which kind of turned me on. And so I assumed it kind of turned him on too. And, and I think that uh, it, hopefully it turned a little bit of the audience on. What is this? Is it sex or is it, is it something else? And uh, once I got into that notion and could feel it inside in my creative imagination, the rest of it was just getting it down to nine or ten pages. Uh, the, que- the issue isn't how much you can write and how much you can say, but how little you can say and still make it to the point, and particularly when you're working in a tight format, which the 10-minute play is. Why Pemberton, Nebraska? I just picked, a, I made a name up. I wanted him to be a farm boy from somewhere out west who was coming to college in Seattle, and this was his first real time in the big city, and this is a more sophisticated woman. She's actually a professor of, a professor of uh, zoology at a college, and uh, puts that right out there. And they have an interest, uh, they haven't both have an interest in sea turtles. That's what brought them together online. One of the things she put forward was her interest in sea turtles. And this, this kid, 
from Pemberton, Nebraska, not only was into sheepdogs, he was into sea turtles. And so he responded online to this fact, as well as she was a good-looking lady, and that sort of set the stage for the thing. But Pemberton, Nebraska, population 165, was just made up. I want him to be a farm boy. And the picture to which uh, he responded Mm -hmm. was of this woman when she was 20. 20. He says to her, this isn't you. She says, yes, that is me. Uh, And he says, well, you said you were 20. And she says, well, I I was 20 in the picture. And he says, well, you're a lot older than that that now. And he says, well, I have kids older than 20 now. And, of course, that knocks him back a peg. Uh, And she says, don't don't worry. Uh, People here will think I'm your mother. They won't think we're out on a date for a hot evening. They'll just think it's a mother and a son, and he's home from college, and they're out having a, a good time. And it's a very fancy restaurant. We call it Elliot's Oyster Bar. And uh, he says, my mother, you don't look anything my, like my mother. And she said, well, that's, I'm not your mother, James. I'm just pretending to be your mother. And that means we don't have an Oedipus problem. And he says, what? And he doesn't get it. And, of course, the audience gets it. They roar. It's one of the first times you catch the audience because it's pretty much a statement of her mindset. We're visiting with Don Sampson, who has lived in uh, Willits, California, for 45 years about uh, the plays that he writes when his creative imagination is sparked. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Don, I'm intrigued by the phrase creative imagination. How do you foment that? It's like a river you jump into. You get up in the morning and uh, you face a blank page and you write. And uh, I've been writing one way or another all my life. And I don't have a problem getting into what I call my creative imagination. It's uh, zinging around with all sorts of suggestive ideas for plays or for conflicts or for little pieces of dialogue. Uh, I have no problem with that kind of a stuff. And uh, getting into a creative imagination is becomes habitual. It's very much like I play the piano. I sit down at the piano in the morning. I don't read music. I don't know what I'm going to do. All of a sudden, I start to play, and I realize that's where I am today. And I'll play improvisational things that, that may sound like they came out of classical music, or they may sound like pop music, or they may sound like I don't know what. But I never really think much about it until I start the process. And the same thing when I write. Unless I'm working on a particular story and editing it and trying to finalize it, if I'm just creating something, I usually just get going. I'll start with pieces of dialogue or things that fly around and see where does it go. It's like stepping through a door into another place. And the best analogy I could make is like to music. I don't sit down thinking I want to play anything particular, I just sit down and I start to play. And then I realize when I'm playing, this is what I'm doing. This is, this is the vein I'm in today. It's, it's happy. It's sad. It's speculative. It's, it's a little bit jazzy. It's, it's straight classical or something like that. And it's pretty much the same with uh, the writing. When you uh, start with pieces of dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, is that a conversation that you're creating? It could well One be. character responding yes. to another? Yes, and usually turns on conflict. Usually the easiest way to start is two people in some sort of a disagreement or conflict. Who's coming for the weekend? One party wants someone, the other party doesn't. Uh, uh, I wrote a play called... Uh, the game in which uh, the couple in their 30s 
uh, with kids at home. The guy is trying to convince his wife to go with him and another couple to the game, which is playing in the next town. And the game is no more than a, uh, a wife-swapping arrangement where, for all practical purposes, you throw keys in a hat. And uh, I started working that, and of course, that's a rich vein. Uh, I quickly had her saying, why would I want to have sex with someone I've never even met? And of course, he says, well, what about just for the fun of it? And what's fun, from her point of view, of having sex with someone I don't even know? And, and they get into issues of sex as being fun, the masculine point of view, and sex as reflecting intimacy and a direct, compassionate, person-to-person thing, which you think of more as the feminine. And once you get on one of these, once I get on one of these uh, dialogue tears, I mean, I can go on forever. That doesn't mean it's all good, but it means I can get into a lot of material. Some of it's cliche. Some of it is is pretty tasty, I find, all of a sudden. I grab onto something after writing for an hour or two, and I come up with something that I really think is a good hinge for a play. Many plays are written from the uh, writer's personal experience. Are yours in that group, too? Um, Not in a direct autobiographical sense, but I certainly, uh, I know a lot about domestic life having been married as long as I have. And I know the ins and outs of it. And a lot of my plays start between two people in the house, one way or another. Discussions about the kids, um, games they're playing, uh, vacations they're on that are falling apart. You never know what people are going to like. I wrote a one-act play called Recycling. And it's the play where if someone stops me in Safeway and says, oh, yeah, you're Don Sampson. You wrote that play, Recycling. It's sort of like, wow, that's the play everybody seems to like. And, and it's a story of a guy comes back from recycling. It's an absurdity. A guy comes back from recycling. He walks into the kitchen. His wife's there. Her back's turned. He's got these big recycling containers. And her back is turned. And he says, do you think we drink too much? Well, there's no better way to start a conversation with your mate in a situation where both people are drinkers, and like most drinkers, they worry from time to time, are they drinking too much? It's a question all drinkers ask. And so she turns around and says, you think we are? And he says, well, I'm not saying that, but I was at recycling today, and you can't believe how many bottles I threw away, and people were standing around looking at me, and I could see. They were saying, where did all those bottles come from? And it occurred to me, maybe we're drinking too much. And by the way, I noticed a lot of them were white wine bottles. You drink white wine, and I drink red, and she immediately turns on him and explains that, yeah, her friends come over, and they drink white, and that's why uh, there were more white bottles. And the conversation goes on and on, and finally she turns by saying, you know, you're probably right. Maybe we should give up drinking. And he says, completely? She says, yeah, that's the only way to deal with the problem. She says, he says, what problem? She says, the problem of our drinking. He says, we don't have a problem with drinking. I figured it out. What we have a problem is, is a recycling problem. It's not that we drink too much. It's that we recycle too seldom. And she says, ah, that's it. So there's a pause, and he says, would you like a drink? And she says, now it's only 3 o'clock. We don't drink till 5 o'clock. We promised each other. And he says, I won't tell if you won't tell. And he opens a bottle of wine and they have a drink. Ten pages. The audience loved it. They loved the notion that in the end it wasn't, a re- it wasn't a drinking problem. It was a recycling problem. It let everybody off the hook. And it did away with all sorts of talk about we're not going to drink anymore. Uh, that was a worse thought than we drink too much. 
right, in the context of domestic life and the customs of having a glass of wine before dinner, or two or three or four, whatever it is. So uh, of all the one-acts I have done, and I've had about 12 or 15 that have been staged around uh, Northern California, uh, that seems to be the one that people have gotten the greatest joy out of, the greatest tickle out of it. And, uh, And people tend to like comedy anyway, and they love absurdity when it's presented right. There was a lot of comedy in The Blind Date. It really was a comedic thing. Don, I know you from a time before I was aware that you wrote plays. Uh, You worked as a legal researcher and writer in the um, criminal field, working for criminal defense lawyers without formal law training. Correct. What drew you to that? Um, There was something accidental about it in the sense that I had been a journalist for years. I'd worked for United Press International. I'd edited newspapers. I was working for the Telegram Tribune. I was a news editor down at the Telegram Tribune in San Luis Obispo. And my cousin uh, was studying for the bar exam in Berkeley. And uh, I wanted to buy land uh, up here, and he wanted to join me, and he passed the bar. And he took on some indigent criminal appeals, and he needed some help as a writer. He knew the law, and he got my feet wet. He got me moving in it, and I began to understand what the law was about. And I spent a lot of time, years in fact, reading and going through the same texts, contracts, torts, and criminal law that basically he had used. And uh, every day reading the the advance sheets that came out of uh, L.A. on the various court cases of the day and tried to put together a legal education that made me sufficiently educated to be an independent contractor to work for different criminal defense attorneys. And, and although my cousin went on and did just civil work, uh, I spun off uh, and connected with a couple of attorneys around here whom you know and uh, got into just doing criminal defense work and found it uh, interesting and, and profitable. And at one point, you focused a lot of your writing on death penalty appeals. For maybe the last 15 years, it was all almost all death penalty work, and there was a logic to that. Uh, it wasn't that I necessarily was driven by moral reasons to do death penalty work. There was work there, and it paid well. And uh, because it paid well, there was time to do good work. And a lot of the law is rushed. And uh, having the ability to take more time and to get into issues more deeply was very satisfying, and particularly as a writer. And uh, so uh, it was a natural thing that after I achieved a certain competence in brief writing that I would go into death penalty work. And it served me well. It was an interesting line of work. So the work that you did covered what aspect of death penalty? Everything from everything from a, a box of police reports when someone was charged with a crime that they were thinking of charging as, as capital, to the trial itself, doing all the briefing during trial, to the appeal after trial, and then to the, uh, the death, penalty, or death penalty appeal to the California Supreme Court and the habeas corpus to higher courts. I've done all aspects of it. In terms of the connection with the defendant, mm-hmm. did you meet the defendant? Yeah, I always met the defendant. Always met the defendant. Naturally, if it was pre-trial, I saw a lot of him in jail or whatever, or in court sometimes. Uh, uh, he was on death row down in Quentin. Uh, you know, I would see him maybe once a month. Tell us about that experience, the process 
of driving to San Quentin, getting into the meeting room, mm -hmm. talking with them, and your yeah, reflections right. as you leave. Well, there's something surreal about it to start with because San Quentin is one of the most beautiful places in the world in terms of its situation. It's on a, it's on a, on the San Francisco Bay on a little peninsula. I kept thinking, God, well, I'd love to own this piece of property. This is a beautiful place. Um, otherwise, you go in. And uh, you go through a couple of security locks. Then they get your prisoners set up in an isolation booth. It sort of looks like when they did $64,000 question years ago, there's this plexiglass booth that would hold three small chairs and a great big sign on the front of it says, we don't negotiate for hostages, which, which always struck me as kind of I don't know what, funny or something. And uh, that's basically what it is. Uh, the defendant would go in there, and then the, uh, the attorney and I would go in, and then the door would be locked. And there would be someone visually down the hall that uh, you could contact if you wanted to, but that was never a problem. I never had a problem that way in any context, and neither did anybody else I knew, because people on death row are usually very happy to see their attorneys. The attorney and whoever happens to be with an investigator or a paralegal or a psychiatrist, whoever happens to come in for that particular reason. Those people are the defendant's key to life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, life, for all practical purposes, is keeping the case going forever. In, in a certain way, it's true that a death penalty uh, in California is really de facto life imprisonment when you really think of the hundreds of people on death row and how few people have been executed or ever will be. The cases go on and on forever, and I think they go on and on forever because no one's in a rush to get through them. No one wants to have his finger, no court wants its fingerprints on the final case denying uh, a man a writ or, or whatever, particularly now since the Innocent Project has invaded the scene so dramatically, everybody is much more cautious. Don Sampson, writing is not new to you. In fact, it's been part of your family's culture in your existence all of your life. That's correct. Tell us about that. Um, my parents, when I was born, were young. My mother was not even 20, and my father was in his mid to late 20s. And they were both aspiring writers. They had, uh, My dad had done some uh, magazine work, and uh, he'd... Uh, was an editor, uh, one of the editors of Forbes magazine during the war years. I'm talking about World War II when most of the men were off at war and he was 4F because he'd had TB. When I was uh, like nine or 10 years old, my mother and father uh, edited magazines out of the same office. From the very beginning, uh, the written word, uh, syntax, um, uh, proper speech, uh, sentences, editing was just part of the family tradition. It was something that I was very comfortable with. And I'd always thought that I would go on and do some uh, writing. I just took it as a matter of course. And when I left home and, and uh, got out of the army, I uh, immediately went to newspaper work and uh, worked a series of newspaper jobs and uh, as a writer and an editor. And then finally, when the transition came and I went to Willits 
and got doing legal briefs, uh, then I was doing that. It's all one form or another of putting words on the on the page and and making it coherent and telling a story and uh, making it conform to uh, length uh, and, and content restraints. It's a practice. It's not terribly different from writing plays in a lot of ways. A lot of the same principles apply. It's just a different form in which, a different venue in which to apply those principles. My take on it is that in writing a play, your creative imagination is unlimited. In writing a legal brief, uh, you're constrained to the facts of the matter. That's true. That's true. But you still, uh, with that constraint, you're still forming uh, the best possible story you can with the facts. And uh, as tight as you can make the facts and still be true to the facts. Just like a news story, you want to get it down to a headline and a first paragraph if you can. And if you need a second and if you need a third. But the idea of making it pungent, straight, and direct is very important in all those skills, even playwriting. Particularly if you're writing in the short form. You can't wander around in the 10-minute play, which makes it a lot of fun. It's like, uh, do you want to write uh, novels? Do you want to write haikus? Uh, there are different principles involved, and uh, I tend towards, although I've written some full-length plays, I really like the short form. Well, Don Sampson, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an aha or a eureka moment that influenced you, changed your life, gave you a, a concept by which you now live? Yes. Uh, I would say taking LSD. I was in my late 20s, and LSD was... On the rise, and uh, uh, I took it uh, two or three times with some friends. And uh, if you want to get smacked upside the head and have a, a, a eureka experience fast, that's one way to do it. It was a profound experience in a quiet kind of a way, in that it sort of it expanded my mind and allowed me to look at our culture and my life in a different kind of a way, and it freed me from certain constraints of how I thought life ought to be lived and what I should be doing. And, you know, within a year later, I'd had my tie and my jacket off, and I was living on 40 acres in Willits with an outhouse and no running water. And I don't want to say that's the direct result uh, of an acid trip, but it was part of the process that allowed me to rethink who I was and how I was living and how I wanted to live. And uh, it was a profound experience. Who did you find yourself to be? Who did I find myself to be? Um, I found myself to be a free individual that didn't have to be constrained by certain cultural norms and perceptions of how life ought to be lived. I could see there was a, a silliness in, in the culture and an arbitrariness in it. And um, it also transitioned me into Buddhism and Zen thinking, which has predominated a lot of my life later in life. The notion that everything we do is terribly important, but none of it really matters. Uh, that sort of thinking. What would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Live happily ever after. Um, be in good health. Uh, when you're in good health, life is rich and life is wonderful. And I've been fortunate to be in good health. Uh, and I'm fortunate to have a good marriage. And I'm fortunate to live in Willits and have a rural piece of property that I work all the time. And on my 76th birthday, I've taken up the fiddle. 
at 50, I decided I was too old. At 76, I decided I was just right. And so I'm tackling that. And uh, that's really what I want to do. Uh, enjoy each day and be here now. That's really it. I have nowhere to go or nothing I want to do. My writing plays is for my own pleasure and the local community theater. And that's fine. And finally, Don Sampson, yeah. is there a book or a play that you could recommend to our listeners? Both in one book, Antigone. And you know, it's a profound piece of work. 431 BC, it was written, and it is so relevant today. I mean, it deals with the issue of God's law and man's law and where they conflict and doctrines of purity and lack of forgiveness and hubris. And it brings into play notions of Isis and uh, Sharia, as far as Antigone herself, a, a woman who defies uh, the law of the state by, by burying her brother at a time when uh, there was a command that he not be buried. He was considered an enemy, whether she was a terrorist or whether she was a saint. It's a great play. It really is. Don Sampson, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Don Sampson is a playwright who lives and works in Willits, California, who wrote Blind Date, along with many other plays. Don Sampson recommends Antigone, the book which is also a play by Sophocles. This interview was recorded on May 22nd, 2015. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org, and the phone is 707 462-6541. Christina Honestead is the assistant producer and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>